we do not need to be afraid. We need to have a great confidence in him. And we need to walk in wisdom. And we need to love our neighbors ourselves. And let's pray that God would help us do that in every way. I also want to say this morning just how grateful I am. Uh, you know, my, my family was able over the last few weeks to have some rest and some time off, and that was a sweet thing and a good thing, and we're grateful for you allowing that to happen. I was also particularly grateful for what I saw happen from the pulpit over the last two Sundays uh, because we have not missed any of the goodness of God's Word. We have been well-fed over the last two Sundays, both with Tony Shepherd and then Adam Messer, our own member of our church, just faithfully preaching God's Word. And I just want to highlight that it's so important for the life of this church that we remember that what is important is not that any particular man would preach God's Word, but that God's Word would be preached. And we can be grateful that it was preached and preached well and faithfully, and I'm grateful for that. Well, as we turn our hearts to God's Word this morning, I'd ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to look at, at verses 10 to 12 this morning, but I want you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word, and we are going to read this entire passage, which we'll get to know pretty familiar, I think, through reading it over and over in coming weeks as we look at this passage together, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. This is what God's Word says. Finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Well, in his introduction to his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis made this insightful comment about the way that men and women tend to think about and interact with Satan and his demons. He said this, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, we can see the truth of this statement in our own day. There are many in our country today who disbelieve in Satan and demons. They imagine the devil as a little more than a fairy tale. They think of him as just something that religious people use in order to kind of enforce their morality on others. But it is also true that in America in our day, many people have what Lewis would describe as kind of an excessive interest, an unhealthy interest in Satan and in demons, I think it's very clear to see that our culture is growing darker. I think you see that in the decorations that are being put around people's houses on Halloween. I think you see it in the dark movies that Hollywood continually puts forward. 
So Satanism and the occult are front and center in many of the movies that Hollywood is kind of continually putting out before us. And unfortunately, many people seem to unthinkingly watch those. Even many professing Christians seem to unthinkingly watch those. And we may argue that the images in those movies aren't real, so what's the harm? And to that, we would simply say that the images don't have to be real, whatever that means, for them to be satanically inspired and spiritually poisonous. And that is what they are. Instead of indulging in darkness, Christians should remember that Satan is real, that he's powerful, that he is unspeakably evil, and that we need to resist him in our day. If we're going to live in a way that God has called us to live, if we're going to walk in a way that God has called us to walk, in other words, we need to remember that as believers, we are involved in an ongoing, continual spiritual battle. It's a real battle. We don't see it as it is just yet, but it's all around us. It's as real as we are, indeed more real in the sense that God and Satan are warring and we are in the midst of it, and it's very, very serious. And God's Word takes it seriously, and this is one of the things that you see in this passage that we're going to be studying for you know, perhaps the next four weeks. I'm kind of looking at it as a four-part study. It may be a six-part study. We'll see as we work our way through it, because there's a lot here. It's interesting to me that at the end of this epistle, this letter, there's so much here about spiritual warfare, and we need to take the time to study it and understand it and know it so that God can help us to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. Because as in every other way, the Bible doesn't leave us orphans in terms of how we're to think, and in terms of how we are to act and live. And spiritual warfare with Satan and all the hosts of hell is a reality that we must know about and consider and live in light of so that we can live as light in a very dark world. So we're looking at the book of Ephesians again. This is really kind of the last, kind of the final teaching section of this book. It's what's on Paul's mind at the end of this magnificent letter. And really, we're kind of coming to the end of what's been the application portion of this book. So Paul, since Ephesians chapter 4, has been kind of unpacking for us how we are to live in light of the redemption that Christ has won for us, in light of God's plan for all of history to redeem a people for his name, the church. How are we to live in light of that truth? We were, we were told by Paul in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4 that we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, which we have been called in Christ. And we have seen what that looks like. We've seen that it looks like walking in unity as a church, that it looks like walking in love, that it looks like walking in purity, that it looks like walking as light in a dark world, and that it looks like walking in wisdom. And then more recently, from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, we've been looking at God's wisdom for the home, how we're supposed to live in light of the gospel, in light of the plan of redemption in our home. And so we've seen God's design for marriage, for a husband and for a wife. We've seen God's design for parents and children. We've seen God's design for employers and employees, even though the context there was slave masters and slaves. And we've thought about how we're supposed to live and act in this world. And, you know, looking at God's wisdom, and I hope you've seen it. I hope you've seen the brilliance of it, the, the balance of God's wisdom. We might be tempted to think that, well, you know, this is kind of easy. God's kind of set this up for us. But, of course, it's not easy to live these ways, is it? No, we find over and over that we stumble and we fall and we fail to live in the way that we desire to live and in the way that God's called us to live. And much of that has to do with our sinfulness. But it's not simply that, is it? It's more than that. 
we also have an enemy that is at work to deceive and to discourage and to trip us up. Satan and demons are real, and they are at work. They're trying to get us off track, and that's why Paul ends this letter the way he does. He wants to kind of arm us ahead of time so that we know that we're in a fight so that we can fight in a way that brings honor to God. And he's unpacking all of this for us in these 10 verses. This is a serious passage. You know, it's a passage that highlights the power of Satan. You see that here. But it's also an encouraging passage because we remember as the people of God, we are not fighting from the standpoint of defeat. Jesus has already won the battle. And so as we engage in this warfare, we need to remember that we're engaging in this warfare from the standpoint of victory, the victory that Christ has won for us. So this is an incredibly hopeful passage because God has given us everything we need to live in a way that pleases him despite our enemies. Now we're looking at verses 10 to 12 this morning, and in these three verses, I want us to learn kind of three truths. We're going to see three points here. We're going to learn about the resources that we have for spiritual warfare. We'll see that in verses 10, the first part of verse 11. And then secondly, we're going to learn about the nature of spiritual warfare. We're going to see that in the second part of verse 11. And then we're going to learn, thirdly, about the identity of our spiritual enemies. And we're going to see that when we look at verse 12. I hope that you will open your hearts and your ears this morning and listen to what God has to say to us through his word because he loves us. And so he tells us these things so we can be prepared to live for him. Look at that first point, the believer's resources for spiritual warfare. Verse 10 to the first part of verse 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That word finally there in the first part of verse 10 lets us know that Paul is beginning now to kind of bring this letter to a conclusion. He's bringing his thoughts to a conclusion, and now it's interesting that he ends where he is, as we said before, because the last thing on Paul's mind as he writes to these Ephesian believers is this issue of spiritual warfare. Again, he wants us to be forewarned and forearmed so that we can fight. Paul knew that Satan did not want these Christians to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which they've been called. Paul knew that Satan and his demons were going to be at work in the lives of these believers in order to keep them from doing that, to attack them. He knew that was going to happen. Satan does that to us as well, doesn't he? So God's Word speaks to us as well this morning. In this section, Paul begins by giving some commands, two commands to the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord, There, the first part of verse 10, and also to put on the whole armor of God, the first part of verse 11, these two commands are given to us, and these two commands show us two resources that believers have been given in order to engage in spiritual battle against our spiritual enemies, Satan and fallen angels, the demons who follow him. Those resources are God's power and what Paul calls the whole armor of God. So let's look at those one at a time. Let's look at God's power first. Look at the first part of verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, in the original language, in the Greek, that command there to be strong, it's in the passive tense. And so it can be translated this way, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that's a very important point because Paul is not telling us, hey guys, we're at the end of the letter, we're about to break the huddle and go out and and play, and what you really need to do is work hard in your own power to do this. He's saying, no, what you need is to be strengthened by a power that's outside of yourself. You need the power of God at work in your life here because Paul knew that in and of ourselves, we are no match for Satan. You have to, brothers and sisters, you have to understand that. 
If you think that you're a match for Satan and you go on your own resources, you're going to crumble just as quickly as Peter did on the night when Jesus was betrayed. And Peter says, they may all run away from you, but I won't run away. And then what happens? He's sifted and he falls because our enemy is stronger than we are. But we don't have to face Satan in our own strength, do we? That's what this verse tells us. That's what this command tells us. It tells us there's a resource that's available to us, and that resource is nothing less than the power of God. And what is the power of God like? Well, if you've been with us from the beginning of Ephesians, Paul has unpacked for us what the power of God is like. Listen to some of the ways that he described the power of God. He called it in chapter 1, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. What's his power like? It's immeasurable. It's infinite. A little later on in that section there, in verse 20, it's the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the very same power that God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus, brother or sister, is at work in you this morning so that you can engage in spiritual combat against the enemy. It's available to you. It is in Ephesians chapter 3, what Paul called the power that strengthens us in the inner man so that we are, are able to know the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's a big deal, to be filled with all the fullness of God. It's that kind of power. In short, this is the very resurrection power of God. It is the long arm, the strong arm of omnipotence that is available to us to fight and the fact that this command, be strong in the Lord, is in the present tense in the Greek, means that we are to be strengthened by God continually. This isn't a one-time thing. You know, I prayed that prayer you know, a few years ago. It's not like that. It's day by day being strengthened. It's really moment by moment, kind of humbly coming to God and say, give me your strength to fight. Give me your strength to obey. And the glory is that God's power is always available. We may not always take advantage of it, but it's always available to us. And that's a wonderful thing. How do we access this power? I found John MacArthur helpful here. He said, appropriation of this strength comes through the means of grace, prayer, knowledge of and obedience to the word and faith in the promises of God. You see, uh, friend, you can't just sit back and expect that you're just going to be able to kind of coast through the Christian life okay and just kind of do okay. You, you can't let go and let God. Instead, this command is active. You have to actively obey this command to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And what does that look like? That means look like actively going to God and seeking him for the grace. It looks like taking advantage of the means of grace, the, the word of God and prayer that God has given us in order to strengthen us. So if you will not read God's word during the week, if you will not pray during the week, you should not be surprised if you stumble and struggle. No, God has given us resources through which he gives us his power, and we need to take advantage of those resources. It is an active dependence on God, and it's a continual one. And as we do that, God is faithful. God will give us the power we need to fight. It is a great thing to have the power of God at work in us. But then there's another resource we have here, another resource for this battle. Notice what he says there, the first part of verse 11. This is the whole armor of God. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. That word there that's translated the whole armor of God, it speaks of a, a complete set of armor that's useful for defense and offense. 
for protecting yourself and also for going on the attack. And we'll see that as we study the rest of this passage. Now, Paul was imprisoned in Rome as he wrote this letter. It's possible that at that moment he was kind of chained, shackled to a Roman soldier. That was a common practice. It's very possible that as he writes about the whole armor of God and kind of spells it out for us, that he's actually looking and seeing armor in front of him. He's able to work his way down as he does that. That's possible. But if you noticed Rob Smith earlier in the service, he read for us some Old Testament background to this. Where does Paul get this idea from? He gets it from Isaiah chapter 59, where Isaiah speaks of the Lord as a warrior clothed in armor who would bring salvation to his people. And I love that. I love the imagery of our, of our God as a warrior who saw that no one else could bring salvation. And so he comes and does it himself. He does it himself. Listen to Isaiah 59, verses 16 to 17. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The, the breastplate of righteousness there, the helmet of salvation there, it should sound familiar because we're going to study it as we look at verses 14 and verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul describes this as a part of the armor of God. For our purpose this morning, as we think about the armor of God, what we need to understand is that the armor of God, these are spiritual resources that God has given us in order to engage in spiritual battle. There are things like truth, God's truth, and righteousness, and the gospel, and faith, and salvation, and the word of God, and prayer. And if we're going to engage in spiritual conflict in the way that God calls us to, we're going to need to avail ourselves of these resources that God has entrusted to us so that we can fight, so that we can conquer, so that we can be victorious. Now, there's one other thing we need to notice in the first part of verse 11, this command, is that in the original language, this command to put on the whole armor of God, it's in the aorist tense, and that speaks of a one-time completed action. And the idea is that we are to put the armor of God on and we're not to take it off. It's not something we put on and take off and put on and take off. It's something that we put on as believers, and because we will constantly be involved in spiritual warfare, it's something we never take off. If you've read The Pilgrim's Progress, which I trust by now you have, you'll remember that Christian early on in his journey, the palace beautiful, he is given armor, and he keeps that armor on all throughout the rest of his journey until he passes through the river of death. And then, well, then, of course, he's in heaven, and the battle is over and the victory is won. And that's a good picture of what we must also do. We must remember that the believer's life is one of conflict. And so there's been several times when I've talked with another believer who's been sharing about his or her spiritual struggle and kind of in exasperation, they ask, when is it going to end? Perhaps you've felt like that. Perhaps you feel like that this morning. When is it going to end? And the answer to that question I always give is, when you die. That's when the battle will end. That's when the victory will be won. The Lord Jesus, the apostles, the faithful saints through history, they have all engaged in spiritual conflict all throughout their life, and only, only, only when they crossed the river of death did they experience the fullness, listen, of the victory that Christ has already won for us. In the meantime, we fight. 
but one day the fight will end. We will cross the river of death. So Satan's lie that this is never going to end is a lie. It's not true. It will end. It will end when we cross the river or when Lord Jesus comes back. And to that we say, come Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. So these two resources have been given to us for warfare, God's power and the armor of God. Next, let's look at the nature of spiritual warfare. Verse 11, second part of verse 11 there, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now in this verse, what Paul's doing is he's showing us what it looks like to engage in spiritual warfare. What does spiritual warfare look like? It looks like this standing. At the very heart of spiritual warfare is standing against Satan. And we're going to see this again when we look at verses 13 and 14, because three times in those two verses, Paul tells the Ephesian believers again to withstand and to stand firm. And again, in the first part of verse 14, to stand. So looking at this command, I want us to think about three questions that will help us understand kind of the nature of spiritual warfare, what it means for us to be involved in it. What does it mean to stand against the schemes of the devil? Well, the imagery Paul gives us here is one of conflict. You have the Christian soldier. He's established in the truth. He is girded with the armor. He has the power of God, but Satan is assaulting him. And Satan is stronger than him. And Satan comes with an attack, with a blow, and hits him. And Satan's bigger, and it seems like the Christian should be crushed. But for all that, the Christian isn't crushed. Instead, the Christian stands. He resists. She resists. Why? Because he or she has omnipotence at work through them. Because they have the armor of God on. And so instead of crumbling, instead of giving up, instead of fleeing, the Christian stands. The Christian resists the lie and answers back with the truth. And we'll talk about that a lot, Lord willing, in coming weeks. Strengthened by the omnipotent power of God, clothed with the armor of God, the Christian fights, he resists, he stands. And that is very much what it looks like to be involved in spiritual warfare. And that brings us to a second question. What are the schemes of the devil? What are the schemes of the devil? The word translated schemes there can also be translated strategies. In other words, these are the methods, these are the techniques that Satan uses in order to trip us up, in order to deceive us, in order to discourage us, in order to seduce us. And we don't have time to go into all of Satan's strategies. I will say two things about that. First, I'll say that Satan's strategies are not infinite because Satan is not God. He has a limited number of strategies, and by God's grace, as we study God's Word, we can learn about them so that we are forearmed against them. And then I would say, secondly, that Scripture lets us know what Satan's devices are, what his strategies are. So we can't say everything this morning, but let's just think a little bit about what God's Word teaches us about the strategies or the schemes of the enemy. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, we learn that Satan often uses anger in his attack against the believer. Listen to what Paul says there. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You see, in our anger, the devil is seeking an opportunity. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, we see that Satan sometimes uses bitterness and a lack of forgiveness. Bitterness and a lack of forgiveness. Here's what Paul says there. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. 
Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So we may feel justified, we may even feel righteous in holding and withholding forgiveness from someone who sinned against us, but actually we're falling into one of the schemes of Satan who wants to trip us up and keep us from being able to serve the Lord. False teaching is another one of Satan's strategies, and he uses it to lead people away from the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And friends, those are everywhere in our day. They're everywhere. Satan also uses our lack of self-control to lead us into sin. Speaking to married couples in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, Paul says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan wants to use our lack of self-control to lead us into sin. And of course, Satan has other strategies. We can mention the way Satan will attack at times, be permitted by God to attack at times through illness, through physical tragedy. He did that in Job's life. He certainly did that if you read through the history of Paul's ministry, the many ways that he suffered, even as he had to, in order to take the gospel to those who need it. We could talk about Satan's skill and discouraging. I think this one's huge. It's so easy for us when we're under spiritual attack to become discouraged. So Peter fails. He falls into sin, and then he's discouraged after that. He's grieved after that. Satan likes to use discouragement. We could talk about the way that Satan distracts by offering us pleasure, by offering us success in the world so that we neglect the kingdom of God. We believe the lie that the most important things about us is what we can achieve in the here and now. And so instead of living our lives for Jesus and investing in eternity, well, we just choose something ever that's a little shinier, a little prettier, it seems. But ultimately, when we come to die, friends, we'll regret it. We will. We'll regret it. We could talk about the reality that Satan is a master deceiver. Jesus called him the father of lies. These are just some of Satan's schemes. And our enemy is cunning, and he's experienced in using these and others in order to lead us away from the truth of God's word. So at the, listen, at the very heart of spiritual warfare is resisting these schemes these strategies, these lies. How do we do that? By the grace of God and by the truth of God's word, through faith and by God's power. This is combat. This is a fight. This is war. And we have been called to this war. My question for you this morning is, are you fighting? Are you engaged in the war? There's a third question. Where does the believer stand? I think this is very encouraging and very important. I find it very interesting that Paul pictures the believer as standing firm as opposed to moving forward and taking more ground. Why isn't the believer moving forward and taking more ground? Why? Because the victory, friends, has already been won by Christ at the cross. At the cross, Jesus overcame Satan. At the cross, Jesus won the victory. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, that was not a whimper of defeat. That was a triumphant, exultant shout of victory over Satan and the forces of hell. And now those of us who are in Christ 
are called to enter into the fullness of that victory and to fight from the standpoint of that victory, and we've seen it. Listen, just think about the victory of Christ that's being seen in every generation. So if you're discouraged right now by the news, think about the fact that in every generation, King Jesus is calling out more sons and daughters into his kingdom, and how many of those are lost? None. The kingdom of God only advances. The kingdom of God only grows until the fullness comes. And then Christ himself will establish a perfect kingdom here. We must not be overwhelmed when we watch the crumbling of the city of man. Because the city of God is eternal. And we're citizens of that city. What good news that those who follow Jesus enter into his victory. This really brings us to the gospel because the bad news of the Bible is that all of us have been defeated by Satan. That's the message that we're told from the very beginning. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were put into the garden to love God, to serve it, to make it better, but they listened to the lie of Satan. Instead of believing God's word, that following his way is best, instead, no, they thought, we'll find freedom if we do it our way. We've all believed that same lie. They rejected God's command. They sinned against him. They fell into sin. We sinned in them, and because we came from them, we've all inherited that same nature that just kind of wants to live for self as opposed to living for God and as opposed to loving others. And we have all, in countless ways, fallen, been defeated by temptation and by sin, so that not one of us can stand before God and say, hey, God, I've done such a good job. I've lived such a good life that you should receive me into heaven. None of us can say that because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And left to ourselves, left to ourselves, if we had to stand before a holy God and put our track record there, every single one of us would face his wrath and his judgment, and we would be separated forever from him in a place the Bible calls hell, and that's the great and final defeat. There is good news. Oh, brothers and sisters, the good news is that while all of us have been defeated, King Jesus was never defeated. He came into this world to conquer. He was a king. He is a king. He was born for the purpose of establishing his perfect kingdom. And what did he do? Well, he obeyed the will of his father in every way. He lived the kind of life we should have lived, but we failed to live. We were overcome by temptation, but he was never overcome by temptation. And when the time was right, at just the perfect, in the fullness of time, when God's plan was to be fulfilled, he comes into this world, lives a perfect life, and then dies on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. It looked like defeat, didn't it? It looked like Satan won, didn't it? But no, he cries out, it is finished. Why? Because he had won the victory. And he rose from the dead in a display of that victory. And now there's this glorious hope, friend, if you will this morning turn from your sin and put your hope in this Savior, Jesus. He'll be your Savior. And you will enter into his victory in this way. God will look at you as if you lived his perfect life. And all of your sins, all of the ways you failed, all of that will be covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ. That is the way to be saved. But then, brothers and sisters, what we're seeing in this passage this morning is it goes further than that. All of us who have been saved have now been, as it were, brought into this spiritual army. We've become soldiers for Christ, and we've been given a task of fighting and of coming into this victory that Christ has won for us. And our task is not to overcome in, in some ultimate way, because Jesus already has done that. Our task is to honor our king by standing firm, by not giving up any ground. That's what we're called to do in spiritual warfare. To live in light. What is the nature of spiritual warfare? It is a participation in Christ's victory. It's standing against the schemes of the devil. It's this, it's this manful resistance to Satan. It's simply not giving up. 
It's not giving up. No, it's trusting God. It's a hard fight, but it's a good fight because Christ has already won. More briefly now, a third point, verse 12, the identity of our spiritual enemies. It's been two weeks since I preached, so we're going to enjoy this a little bit. Verse 12, verse 12, the identity of our spiritual enemies. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here in this verse, Paul gives us greater clarity, greater insight into the identity of our spiritual enemies. He tells us first who our enemies are not, and then second, he tells us who our enemies are. Look at the first part of verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The word wrestle there is a word that speaks really of, uh, of a struggle, of a violent struggle, really of hand-to-hand combat. That's the picture, hand-to-hand combat. So Christians are engaged in this fierce battle, but the fierce battle is not against other people. We must remember as followers of Jesus that people are not our enemies. Even in an election year in America, people are not our enemies. They are our mission. And that is such an important point because Satan confuses us, doesn't he? He makes us look at other people as if other people are our enemies. Sometimes he's able to make us think that other believers are our enemies. And that's tragic. And I think we're seeing a lot of it right now in light of the upcoming presidential election. Many professing Christians in America have become vocally and openly opposed to one another. Some argue it's immoral to vote for Trump. Others argue it's immoral to vote for Biden. These disagreements have become more heated because of the tragedy we've seen in this year, the racial tension, the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. Many friendships among Christians have ended over these issues, issues of politics. And that's tragic. It's tragic because the things that unite us, the gospel, Jesus, eternity, well, those things are eternal. And the things that are dividing us right now, they're temporal. They're passing. The Jesus we possess in common is greater than any any temporal earthly difference that may divide us. We have to remember that. But really, we need to remember as Christians that we're not permitted to hate any person. So this was a tragic event, but the the Muslim man in France had attacked and killed three people with knives shouting, you know, Allahu Akbar. He's not our enemy in the ultimate sense. He is one who has been deceived by Satan. He is someone who, if he doesn't repent of his sins, will spend an eternity in hell. And so we must not hate him. We must pray for him. I'm not saying justice shouldn't be done. I am saying we have no license to hate anyone. No, instead we must pray and we must love and we must follow Jesus in that, right? As he's being nailed to the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Isn't that a good example for us? Isn't that a good model for us? But Christians do have enemies. We have spiritual enemies. That's what you see in the second part of verse 12. Paul lists out who these enemies are, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's speaking of Satan, and he's speaking of the fallen angels who follow Satan. You must understand Satan is not a rival god. 
He's not in some way equal to God. He doesn't have like all of the dark power and God has all of the light power. We're not dualists, no. Satan is a created being. He's a powerful being, but he is merely a creature. And the other demons or fallen angels who follow him are likewise creatures. They are stronger than we are, but they are, remember, no match for God. Now, commentators kind of look at these four groups. There's four groups here, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evils. And, and commentators give us different interpretations for what that may be referring to. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce gave this suggestion that rulers refer to demons who have control over particular regions of the world, that authorities refer to demons who control the value systems of the world and promote false philosophies. The cosmic powers refer to demons who control the way people think and act. He suggested that they often use the media to achieve that control. I think there's something to that. Spiritual forces of evil speaks of the deep evil that marks fallen angels and all that they do. I think that's possible, but I don't know that Paul's purpose here is to kind of set out a precise power structure in the way that Satan has established the kingdom of darkness over this world. I think instead Paul intends for us to learn key truths about our enemy. I think there are three that we should take away this morning. First, we should see that these are powerful beings, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. Those are words of power. They're greater than we are. They're stronger than we are. Second, they're organized. Do you notice that Satan is not just kind of sitting back hoping that bad things are going to happen? No, Satan has plans. He is what the Bible calls the God of this world, and he is executing those plans in space and time to accomplish his purposes, which include opposing God and keeping men and women enslaved to sin. And then third, notice that they are irredeemably wicked. They are pure malevolence. There is no mercy, no love, nothing good in their hearts. They are utterly wicked. It is a very good reason for Christians not to play with dark things. A very good reason. They hate God. They hate people made in the image of God. They, in particular, hate those who possess the Spirit of God. So facing such an enemy, how should we respond? I think we can give three responses. Brothers and sisters, we should live soberly and carefully in this world. The American soldiers who were dropped behind enemy lines in German-occupied France, they had to be careful as they fulfilled the mission that had been given to them. In the same way, we have been given a mission. We sang about that. I loved how the songs just kind of all flowed together with the sermon this morning. We have this great commission, but we must remember, in a sense, we're on enemy-occupied territory in this physical world, and so we must be wise, and we must be watchful, and we must be prayerful, and we must be sober as we seek to cause Christ to be known. Don't you want your life to matter? Don't you want your life to matter? We must be wise in the way that we live. Second, we should stay close to Jesus. A sheep that wanders away from the, from the shepherd is easy pickings for the wolves. It's not there's anything wrong with the sheep. A sheep is a sheep, but a sheep is no match for a wolf, and it's no match for a lion. And Satan is, is compared to a lion, as we read about from 1 Peter 5. And false prophets are wolves. And what that means, brother or sister, let me put it as plainly as I can, if you will not stay close to Jesus, if you will not stay close to the fellowship of the church, you will end up a victim of Satan. We need to stay close to Jesus. Third, 
and I love this one, we should be confident. Don't you, don't you love that we can end it that way? We should be confident. Why? Satan is far stronger than we are, but King Jesus is infinitely stronger than he is. There is no doubt about the way that the spiritual war will come to an end. Satan is already defeated, and one day we will see the fullness of his defeat when he and all the forces of hell are cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And that's why we rejoice to sing the song we sang earlier, Mighty Fortresses Are God, that says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. He will be defeated utterly when Christ returns. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we can be confident. So brothers and sisters, looking at this passage this morning, we have learned uh, much about spiritual warfare. We've thought about our resources for the fight. We've thought about the nature of our warfare, and we've thought about the identity of our spiritual enemies. And Lord willing, in coming weeks, we're going to study more in this passage and learn more about how we are to engage in this great battle that we're called to be a part of. And we can go into this week with great confidence because Jesus is able to help us be victorious. Let's go to him and ask him to do that in us. Lord, we come to you this morning because we can have no confidence in ourselves. We, facing such enemies, can have no confidence in ourselves, but we have utter and complete confidence in you. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have been so kind to teach us and, and to, to show us our need of you, but then to show us how kind you've been to give us everything we need to engage in this battle. And Lord, I know some are discouraged this morning. I pray you'd strengthen them. I know some are wandering from you. I pray that you would use your word this morning to bring them back so that they are not taken captive. I pray, Lord God, for those who may be here this morning who do not know you, that they would understand that this world is about more than getting stuff and pleasure, and then dying. They would understand that this is a great cosmic reality, and Christ is the Savior, and they would put their trust in Him today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.